Phoenix Tales is a community celebrating everyday women overcoming extraordinary challenges in their lives, discovering the fire within and like the phoenix enduring the ashes to rise again. Each of you has a phoenix tale or a phoenix moment. As we create this community of women with grace and grit, share your own phoenix tale or your own phoenix moment on our website. We're honored to hear another story to welcome another phoenix. Today's guest, Farag Masurlian, at the age of 19, fled Lebanon during the country's civil war, making her way to London where she reunited with a father she had never known. Hear this remarkable story that crosses continents and countries and the many life-altering challenges Farag faced and overcame to finally living a life far from the rubbles of a country destroyed by war. Please welcome Herig Misserlian. Welcome, Herig. Um, Thank you. I always start the show off by just asking one question. And the question is, was there an event in your life that was challenging personally or professionally that had basically changed the direction of your life? Yes, I... Uh found myself alone during the first six months of the Lebanese Civil War in 74-75. And decisions I took at that time impacted my life completely. How old were you? I was 19. Could you give us a little background history? I'm Armenian. I was born in Lebanon. I grew up in Lebanon until I was 19. I went to an Armenian elementary school and then a Lebanese middle school and then an American high school and uh, was hoping to go into the American University of Beirut. But things worked out differently at that point. And your family had come from Turkey. My maternal grandparents were both survivors of the Armenian genocide in Turkey. They had ended up in Lebanon through coming through the Syrian desert. And my father's parents had similarly ended up in Haifa in Israel. And then they were given a a gentle hint late one night to leave their home and leave the country from a local friend. And they did. And they all ended up in Lebanon, and that's how I was born. The sense of displacement, is that a thread that kind of runs through your family history and then something that you can kind of see having impacted your own history? Yes, it's very much a life of being a bit of an outsider, no matter where you are. And then you realize that every generation in your family ending with yours, because I don't have any children, went through this displacement. It gives uh, one a different outlook in life, that nothing is permanent, that tomorrow, who knows, I may have to start all over again. And also... We are fairly, (laughs) indestructible is too strong a word, but like I told someone many years ago, 
I'm Armenian. If you crush me, I will lift myself up and start all over again. So let's go back to when you were 19 and the Lebanese civil war had started. Mm -hmm. I can imagine how terrifying that was. So your mother was around or she was not available to help uh, you? At that time, she was in Austria and got stuck there. And my maternal grandparents were up in the mountains, what ended up being behind the Christian lines. And I was in the city itself, which was in within the Muslim demarcation. And so there was no way to connect. And so you were in Beirut, is that right? I was in Beirut, yes. So how did you get out of Lebanon and where did you end up? Well, um, I heard that there was going to be um, a ceasefire coming up. And with the encouragement of a friend who kept saying, yes, you can do it. Yes, you can do it. <laughs> I crossed the demarcation line the first day it opened. I had heard that the bank in which I had my own bank box and where my jewelry and coins were. It's traditional in all the Armenian families to give gold coins for every occasion. And I I had them all in the bank. I had heard that the bank I had the stuff in had been bombed. I went there and in fact, Part of the area had been bombed, but part of the area where I had my safety deposit box was okay. So I got my passport and the coins out of there and immediately went to the British consulate because I knew that my father, who didn't live in Lebanon and lived in England, at least there was a parent there a natural parent there. So I went to the uh, British consulate. The lines were all around the consulate, but by good luck, I met the father of a a high school friend of mine from the American school. And apparently he worked inside the consulate and he wanted to know what was going on. Was I okay? I explained my predicament. He said, meet me here tomorrow at 10 a.m., And he essentially gave me a visa without waiting for days and days. I was able to go change all my gold coins into cash, buy myself a ticket and get myself on the first plane to London, England. So you're saying that part of the bank was actually bombed, except the part? Wow. Except the part, but a, a small part had been bombed at the street level and kind of all on the side. But the basement where most of the safety deposit boxes were was mostly intact with only part of it bomb. So then you were able to secure a flight. You left Lebanon and you ended up in London. Is that right? There were 25 people on the flight because it was dangerous to get to the Lebanese airport. But when the 25 of us landed, I... uh, headed to a phone kiosk. I had never been to England or London before and tried to dial a number that I had for my uncle who worked for McCann Erickson Advertising Company and traveled a lot. I found out after a fact. 
I had a number for him and I dialed the number and it was disconnected. I got very scared because all of a sudden I was in a country where I was now unable to contact my father or my uncle. Somebody on the airplane suggested that he take me to a place where I could spend the night and get my bearings. I ended up in a in a YMCA or YWCA in downtown London. I decided to go through my stuff and uh, I found the number that the money exchange guy uh, had given me to contact his sister in London and tell her, we're okay, we're gonna head out to Canada as soon as we can. So I decided to be nice and phone and give this woman a message. But as I called her and she picked up the phone, I realized that she was Armenian, my father was Armenian, and that they maybe know each other. I asked her if she knew my father, David Musurlian. She said, yes, they were on a committee someplace. And I asked her for his phone number, and she asked why. I said, because I had a message for him. Got the number, phoned him, and that's where my, the second stage of my life started. That's uh, where I have to go back to when I was born. 40 days after I was born, my parents decided to separate. Part of the separation agreement, to cut a very long story short, was that uh, my father would not help in my upkeep. However, my father would have no right to meet with me or be part of my life. So I grew up in Lebanon totally under the maternal wing of the family and had never met my father, his parents, or his brothers in my life until I was about 17 years old and I was on the beach one day. At some point, somebody called me on the public announcer system, Hurik Musurlian, come to the phone. And so I went to the phone, I took the call, and when I came out of the phone booth, there was this attractive guy, totally white in the face, waiting outside the phone booth. And I said, may I help you? And he said, hi, Hurig, I'm your uncle, Haik Musurlian. Oh, wow. Apparently, I fainted. We became very close over a two-day period uh, on the beach, and... um, I started seeing that there were two sides to every story. There was definitely a second side to my life and my story. However, my uncle left Lebanon. And after that, he was visiting from Spain, I believe, or London. He went on with his life. I went on with mine, but I never lost the phone number that my uncle had given me. He said, if you're ever, ever in any trouble, just call this number. And that's exactly why when I arrived in London, I didn't know who my father was, how he looked like. So what was that like meeting your dad for the first time? Well, (laughs) scary because I was sitting in the lobby of the YMCA and every guy who walked in through the door, this is about nine, 10 o'clock at night, maybe 10, 11. So not too many guys walked in through the door because it was a girl's building. But whoever walked in, I was wondering whether that was my father. 
this kind of big fat guy walked in, like kind of Peter Ustinov, you know, very roly-poly, walked up to me and said, you must be Hurig. And I said, and you're my father. So then tell me about how you settled in London. Where were you in your educational uh, Well, I had, so I had done what in the French system would turn out to be the first year of a four-year college. Right, so the baccalaureate, right? The second baccalaureate I had done. So I was waiting to go to college, to university, uh, when everything hit the fan. So after meeting your dad and settling into Mm -hmm. life there, did you end up going to school? How did you adjust to this um, whole new life? Well, I had to spend the first six months I was in London basically doing nothing until I could get resident alien paperwork, which then allowed me to work after six months. Once I got the permit to work, I went out. uh, I was told go to Brook Street uh, hiring, and that's where everybody goes. I soon discovered that since I didn't know how to type, take dictation, or any of the lovely skills that I would need to survive in life, that I was unemployable. But I kept telling them I had four languages that I spoke fluently. And somebody walked in from another room and said, do you speak Arabic? I said, yes. She said, okay, I can send you to the Bank of Credit and Commerce. They're looking for young women who speak Arabic, essentially. So that's how I got my first job. And what was that job? That job was uh, <laughs> that job was the telephone room lady. We were still the last year or so of someone who needed to sit in a, a little phone room and connect phone calls. Yeah, that those are old systems. This was a pretty modern looking system, as I recall, but it was as difficult. And I just didn't have the temperament to do the job. So after doing it pretty badly for a couple of months, I went to um, the manager to whom I was supposed to be reporting. And I told her that my brain was turning into um, a sponge and that there must be something else I could do for the bank. Surprisingly, I didn't lose my job and was challenged to start Monday doing the job that she had hired for other British girls to do, which was mainly take care of services for the bank's high net worth individuals worldwide. It was a big Arab bank. So since I didn't know how to type, I basically spent the weekend there, figured out how to write letters, what was an appropriate letter for this, what was an appropriate letter for that. My boss walked in, noticed what I was doing. It pleased her. Anyway, I worked for her for the next uh, five and almost five and a half years, basically taking care of special services for high net worth individuals, anything from buying and decorating apartments for them to arranging for trips, hotel stays, to shopping trips uh, for them. You know, um, you would say the bank was offering, in today's terminology, 
special concierge services, right. and I was part of that core group. From London, how did you yes. end up in the U.S.? Well, <laughs> at some point, the bank asked me, told me that I had to take five weeks of vacation. I ended up taking four weeks of vacation and came to the U.S. at that point in time. My uncle from the beach was working in New York City. And as I was visiting him, I met a close work acquaintance of his. They worked a lot together on developing ads and so on and so forth. The, the guy was a advertising filmmaker. I fell in love with his very light blue eyes, uh, spent at least two weeks of the vacation with him, and then went back to London, gave up my job, sold everything, packed a suitcase, told my uncle I was moving to New York because I liked it, and moved to New York. And what did you do when you ended up here? Well... <laughs> I stayed in my uncle's apartment. I looked for my friend. I saw him for the first couple of weeks. Uh, my uncle got me a job and a sponsorship through the Armenian Archdiocese. One day I went to visit him after work and his doorman gave me a letter and apparently he had decided to leave the city he was sorry to disappoint me, etc., uh, etc. Et so the reason for my coming to New York, left New York, but since I'm a very stubborn person and I don't take to failure too well or bad luck or whatever you want to call it, I decided to stay. And um, the rest is history. I've been here since January 1st, 1980. And what do you do now currently? I currently work for the City University of New York in the central office of the whole system. I'm the senior director of the business office for the university's computer services area. And did Previous you have a degree in that? Oh, gosh, no. Uh, oh, well, there's another segue here. Uh, when I first got my job at the uh, City University of New York, they had reviewed my resume, which said, because of the French system, baccalaureate one and baccalaureate two. So being academics, they interpreted baccalaureate, which is the French baccalaureate that I had received, that was the name, mm -hmm. into a bachelor's degree. So they understood that I had two bachelor's degrees, one year apart. I don't know how they figured that out. About two weeks after I had joined CUNY, uh, they asked me for copies of my two degrees. Uh, I told them I didn't have any degrees. It went downhill from there. My new boss fought for me and went all the way up the chain. And it was decided to hire me as a substitute, not as a full employee, until I managed to go to college and get a college degree. So I started going to college nights and weekends and completed my bachelor's degree in five years, doing nine or 12 credits a semester. 
and I graduated with a 3.97. And how old were you at this point? I was uh, in my early 40s. By the time I graduated, I was 47 or 48, somewhere there. And I decided to do my master's and um, graduated with a two-year expedited uh, master's in public administration degree from Peru College. Your story sounds like a movie. I mean, it's just amazing to have come from a country that erupted into civil war. I'm still trying to picture the bombed out bank and you mm-hmm. finding your safety deposit box mm-hmm. amid the rubble. So you've been through so many challenges and obviously the seismic one being your personal displacement from Lebanon. How did you keep propelling yourself forward? Well, uh, <laughs> because like I said to that person many years ago, you push me down and I push myself back up again. It's in my blood. That's how I am. I strongly believe that there's always going to be a window open if a door closes. Nothing religious about it, but it has happened to me over and over again in my life. I have always found a solution I have always been able to see a solution that's been right there. But I consider myself lucky that not only do I push myself back up and try again, but I always find a way out of whatever disaster I'm faced with. So you just attribute that mostly to your Armenian ancestry? Partially. Life has also made me someone who decided long time ago not to take things sitting down and crying her eyes out because I spent a lot of my childhood years doing just that. I see your life in like chapters of Mm -hmm. a book. Was there one particular chapter where you just found it exceedingly difficult and you didn't know if you could actually survive? I always have difficulty accepting that my body can get sick and has frailties. So between 2013 and 16, I had several attacks of, what is it called? Uh, <clears throat> it's a bad infection of your colon. Um, anyway, um, I was in hospital twice and then I had to be operated and they removed seven inches of my lower colon. That was not a pleasant year and a half, two years, or a pleasant surgery and uh, recovery. And I believe that at that time was the only time when I, if you want, I looked heavenward and said, okay, if this (laughs) is what you're going to do to me for the rest of my life, I'm ready. And then a couple of years later, I started getting all these pains and I started discovering I had all those autoimmune diseases. But a couple of years of pain, I pushed through like a fighter, essentially. At the end, I was screaming (laughs) at every doctor. But the fighter comes out in me when I'm faced with a problem. So when you think back on your life, are there memories that you hold on to that sometimes, you know, like memories of special moments or exceedingly hard times can kind of become touchstones for us, right? Yes. So do you have any specific memories that serve as that for you? Yes, I have 
One good memory, for many years, my bedroom overlooked the famous Lebanese landmark of two big caves in the water in the Mediterranean. And that was my sunset view every single night for as long as I can remember. And I always remember that view. It always comes back to me. I have meditated with it because it puts me in such a pleasant place. And I have some, a bad memory that really also comes back, unfortunately, but that one's a bit too private and uh, it's not worth sharing. I just marvel at your tenacity in your story. And I know that you attribute it towards part, Mm -hmm. perhaps, you know, being Armenian, Mm -hmm. but what other aspects of your personality just enabled you to never question and keep moving forward? Because I don't sense a lot of doubt or things that you might have questioned within yourself. No, no, it was a very um, simple way of looking at it. When something's behind me, I leave it behind me. I have almost always succeeded in not having any more concerns, not looking back. If necessary, I have cut off any connection I have to something like that. I mean, did you ever have moments of self-doubt? No, essentially, I just kept saying something horrible happened. It's behind me. Now I have to look forward and see what I can do next. And I basically take a look at what I have in front of me and and go. So when people have a tendency to kind of cut off their past or in a way excise it from their Mm -hmm. psyche or memory, Mm -hmm. it can also create a sense of a kind of loneliness to not have the kind of the strings of your own history and perhaps family history and family Mm -hmm. relationships. So Mm -hmm. Do you feel that sense of loneliness in your own life? I was uh, an alone child, so I was used to loneliness. I entertained myself all the time, didn't have other kids or too many friends. I don't know how to answer that. (laughs) Well, I mean, I I also grew up like a semi-only child Mm -hmm. and had a very rich inner life. And Mm -hmm. for the first seven years of my life, was very happy being alone and playing alone. Mm -hmm. And I think what that does is it creates this aspect of your core that is very isolated. And in a way, something that I find I protect. And yet there are moments in my life where that protection and that sense of isolation that's very, very part of me can create a sense of disconnection from my life and a sense of loneliness. I guess that's what I'm trying to get at. I don't have the kind of roots. Most of my American friends of many years do. Had to move from continent to continent every 20 years or so. There's definitely a sense of inner loneliness all the time, but I can essentially say that I am used to it. And by now I find that I'm one of the few people I know who feels okay being alone most of the time. 
I have that same experience. So now as you are sort of at a point in your life, I'm sure there's a lot more reflection or looking in the back in the rear view mirror, more or less. Are there moments that you wish you could kind of redo or change or shift? Yeah. Do you have two more hours? (laughs) (laughs) There must be one. I mean, usually there's always one moment in someone's life that they wish they could redo. There are quite a few Although I have always listened to my gut and been successful at it, I have also listened to my gut and put my foot in things pretty badly. And I, you know, these are things I don't want to keep within me, but put behind me 100%. So for someone who has had so many life experiences, you know, obviously, like you said, moving continent to Mm -hmm. continent, If you could offer advice to the listeners and some of them may feel that same set of circumstances in a way where they have to make big changes in their life, what advice could you offer someone? Go for it. Do it. Start your life over and over again. If you want, if it makes you happy, if it gives you what you're looking for all these years. I also feel that my best advice would be, on the other hand, that if you don't have the need to uproot yourself from your family, your community, your society, or your country of birth, don't, because starting a new life even only once, takes a lot of work and you will be an outsider for a long time until you are accepted. That's difficult for a lot of people to take. And what if somebody didn't face quite the sort of like geographic dislocation? What if they were just facing, like you faced, the challenge of having to get a college degree Mm -hmm. at the age of 40-something? I mean, what advice could you offer someone who maybe that is a challenge or Mm -hmm. they would like to do something like that and they don't have the wherewithal? Well, two ways. I could have said, okay, sorry for the misunderstanding. Uh, I'll leave at the end of the month or wherever you want. Or I, um, after uh, I simmered down from being (laughs) angry about the situation, I decided, okay, if they want me to go to school, I will go to school, you know. The last question is always a question kind of out of left field. So if you could name one song that describes or resonates with your life, what would that song be? There is a song about sunshine, I think by Al Green, but it's a very hopeful song. And also, I get very emotional listening to the Beatles version of Yesterday. That always seems to get me. Is it sort of the wistfulness of that song or? Wistfulness, the yesterday where I was growing up, the things I did as a child. I mean, it's funny how the land you were born on has a way of drawing you in, even if you are thousands of miles away. And I have not been in Lebanon since I left it at 19. 
it really speaks to me because my yesterdays as a child are such a fond memory because they're so far away. I don't remember my family life as much as my school events, happenings. The city of Beirut, perhaps. Yeah, yeah. That's beautiful. Well, thank you, Herig. I know my listeners are going to find your story incredibly interesting and inspired. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Phoenix Tales, a show about women overcoming challenges and like the Phoenix to be reborn, their lives reimagined. Make sure to tune in to our next episode to hear another inspired story. I am Yuliana Kim Grant. The show is edited by Podigy. Music is by Ryan Pruitt. It's like a dream, so let me never wake up. I was so hung up on myself, just like a stick in the mud. A little time, a little patience. When I got tired of waiting, then I found that gem within me sticking out of the mud. And they gon' ask me why I do it. I'ma say this because we gon' be the best on earth, just like we be out in rust. Pass behind me like a book bag, hanging down a coat rack, focused on the future, not that coulda, shoulda, would. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave your comments on the platform where you get your podcasts. If you think you have a Phoenix tale, please send us a note on our Instagram and Facebook pages. If you just want to stay connected to Phoenix Tales, once again, you can go on to our Instagram and Facebook pages to get all the latest updates.